When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Today, a special edition as we look back on the 30th anniversary of the last Super Bowl triumph by Washington, which was, of course, January 26, 1992. I bring along Richard Justice, who covered the team from the, for the Washington Post at the time and is a remarkable storyteller. He has some fun Joe Gibbs stories, among others, how Jack Ken Cook pissed off Gibbs, and with Andy Pollan from ESPN 630, who of course grew up in Washington, has been involved in radio here for decades, interviewed quite a few players from that team, and has some good stories himself. It was a fun look back at a great time in this franchise history. You can follow Andy on Twitter at AndyPolin1 and listen to him on ESPN 630 at 10 a.m. each morning. And you can follow Richard at Richard Justice. You can read my work on ESPN.com and follow me on Instagram at John Kime ESPN. Also, you can subscribe to Empire Media on YouTube, where you can find videos of my interviews as well as other shows on the Empire Network, including the All's Cap podcast with Carl Alsner and Steve Wino. That's Empire, A-M-P-I-R-E, Empire Media on YouTube. Before I play my conversation with Richard and Andy, a couple things. Actually, one topic, Derek Carr. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Derek Carr in Las Vegas. And a lot of that's going to depend on who the coach is, who the GM is. Every time I talk to a football person, whether it's someone involved in the game as a coach, a GM, former GM, they say the same thing. Why would Las Vegas want to trade him? Who are you going to get that's better? Now, maybe if they went out and got Russell Wilson, then you see it. But the answer is simple. The guy in the organization who was high on Carr is gone. That's John Gruden. It's known out there that the owner hasn't been high on Carr. Um, whether or not that means he'll trade him, it does make this one to watch depending on who gets hired again as the coach and GM. If Mark Davis isn't a fan, would he really want to pay Carr $30 plus million dollars to extend them, considering this is the last year of Carr's deal. And talking to some people, they view Carr and Kirk Cousins on a similar plane as far as where they would rank in the quarterback hierarchy. But Carr is considered mentally tougher and a better overall leader. I've heard some really good things about him from a leadership standpoint. They're comparable in that both would need more help to get them to a certain spot, but they're both quality quarterbacks. And with Carr, the one thing that Washington went out and got him, depending on what you have to give up for him. And we're, I'll get more of that in some other future podcasts, but it wouldn't be as prohibitive as getting some other guys, but pay wouldn't be as prohibitive as some other quarterbacks, but there is a package you have to consider. And for anybody who says that Taylor Heineke is close to these guys, he's not. Nobody I talk to will say that. Um, it's just, it's just the reality of the situation. Now, whether or not you're comfortable giving up a lot for Carr, that's another matter, but he would represent quite an upgrade if they're able to go that way. But it is something to watch because, again, 
the guy who really liked him and wanted him there was John Gruden. So something to monitor. And Carr keeps saying he wants to stay there, but if Gruden is gone to talk, if Gruden's gone as a, as a guy who could talk Davis out of something, then will the next guy have that sort of juice? If not, Carr will be a possibility. Anyway, we'll continue to get into all that as the offseason unfolds. But after this quick break, let's celebrate the 1991 Super Bowl team with a look back at behind-the-scenes stories from one of the best beat writers in America, Richard Justice, who covered the team for the Washington Post. What did Jack Kent Cook say to Joe Gibbs that pissed him off? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Four teams remain in the NFL playoffs, and that means only four teams left for you to bet on at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers can get 56 to 1 odds on any team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. Not a new customer? You can experience the conference championships with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code KIME, K-E-I-M, and get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team. Bet just $5 to win 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code KIME for 56 to 1 odds at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Welcome back. Now here's my conversation with Richard Justice and Andy Poland. So I wanted to have both you guys on because Richard, you cover this team and you're, when I've heard you on other interviews, I've been around you, you're one of the best storytellers I know. And it's always entertaining. And I know you have some good stories. And Andy, you're in a unique role because I know, I think you were at WFAN in that 91 year, but you grew up here and you were, you were a Redskins fan at that time. And, and obviously you have some great memories and some stories to tell of your own from interviews over the years, et cetera. So, but I just, I want to start just kind of putting into place how special that year was. And Richard, we'll start with you. How unique was that team? I think it was one of the most unique rosters ever constructed. Because you, because look, you look, look at what they had. They had rookies, rookies veterans, and guys that had been the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. But they but didn't have superstars. Star. I mean, who, how many, how many, how many went to the fame? Meryl Green went to the fame. Art Monk was a player. Harry Clark was a player. Wilbur Marsh, Marsh, Richie Pettibone said later, played the most uh, dominant defensive game they'd ever had. So they just, what they did was, you know, with all these plan B free agents, I think five defensive starters were plan B guys. They fit the talent uh, into the, they fit the system into the talent. What did Mark Rippon do better than almost anybody? He threw the best deep ball you've ever seen. They emphasized the deep ball. But let me, my favorite story of that season, there were a couple, but they're 0-3. And, John, you were there. I mean, I'm sorry, they're 3-0. They're going to Cincinnati to play 0-3 Bengals. That week, Gibbs had told us, look, we know what we're going to get. They were a playoff team last year. 
it's going to be like a caged animal. We're going to get their best shot, and we better be ready. Now, they're playing an 0-3 team that I think won three or four games the whole year. And, John, you remember, when the players came out of the meetings on Wednesday, they all said the same thing. It became a mantra for that week that we're going to get their best shot. We're going to have all we can handle. And I, I'm telling you, by the time they stepped onto that field on Sunday, they would they saw themselves as, if not underdogs, somebody, a team that was going to have its hands full. And that was, the to me, that said what the whole season was like in that they, they, they accepted the challenge. We are not the most talented team. The night before the Super Bowl, Charlie Casserly said, I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I mean, if you're going to evaluate it by players that can make plays and win the game, they have way more than we do. You know, they have Thomas and, and Kelly and, and Bennett and all those guys. And uh, we have to play together as a team. One other story I bore you with, John, is that um, they called off and they did this in their previous Super Bowl victory. On Thursday, they ended practice. They called it off because the hitting was so fierce that they afraid somebody was going to get hurt. I'll never forget this. Emmett Thomas said after that Thursday practice, I would not want Emmett Thomas, the secondary coach. I wouldn't want to be playing us this year. And just here's the way the preseason ended. You know, they got beat. They looked bad. Remember Steve Buckhans asked Gibbs, yeah, I remember that. all favorites. Hey boy. <laughs> and, 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 and Gibbs goes, by who? And he goes, uh, uh, playboy. <laughs> Joe, Joe spent the rest of his life apologizing to Buck, Buck for that. But, but the point was, on the Monday after that, Jack Kent Cook says to Joe Gibbs on the field, you know, you've completely screwed this team up. <laughs> what you need to be is we need a team like that, that great Jimmy Johnson has in Dallas. And Gibbs takes off his jacket, throws it to the ground, and says, I am sick of hearing that, blah, blah, blah. And Cook, you know, I think the three of us would say Jack Kent Cook was the most intimidating person or among the most intimidating people we ever met. Cook just said, now we need to go upstairs and have a cup of coffee and settle down. But you remember after every game as they won and won and won, Joe had the same thing he would say every week. You know, the players are just taking us for a ride. We're just along for the ride. And only later did he did I understand that that was his shot at Jack Kent Cook. <laughs> That's great. Well, and unfortunately for me, I didn't get to cover that team because I came along. I got, I've had the non-glory years in my entire <laughs> realm of coverage. So I missed that. So, so like I, and I was around in, in the city, in the area at the time. And I think I did one or two stories that year, but it was like, I wouldn't know what it's like to be around a good team because I've only covered them since 1994. <laughs> so I haven't covered them quite long enough, apparently, but, and, and Richard, I want to get back to some of those in a minute, but for Andy, where, where should this team this always feels like an underappreciated team when you compare Super Bowl winners. I think when there are deep rankings, they come out higher than what maybe fans might realize. But how do you think this team, that team stacked up compared to other winners um, throughout history? You know, it might be partly like a Larry Holmes syndrome. And, and I think I'm correct in this. Uh, in the first game of the year, Randall Cunningham hurt his knee and was out for the year for Philadelphia. Philadelphia was expected to be the team that would contend with them throughout the season. And so there really wasn't another great team that year. Dallas was a year away and they didn't really have a test. And, and look at what they did to get to the Super Bowl. They beat two middling teams in Atlanta and Detroit. 
So, you know, sometimes you get respect for who you beat along the way. And, you know, like those Dallas teams had to go through San Francisco to do that. Well, Washington didn't have to do that that year. So I, I think that that's partly due to the lack of respect, though, uh, when they've done some of these polls in recent years, they have said that this is maybe the best team of the Super Bowl era, that one team. Right. And the other thing I think we have to recognize about them is that was the last of the era. The salary cap came in two years later. Right. And so you could keep a Hall of Fame, a Hall of Famer and Russ Grimm around as a backup on that team. Uh, you had guys who'd been there, you know, 12, 13, 14 years like Monty Coleman. And you couldn't do that now. Uh, and so I think that that was like the last hurrah for that era of football. Where, and, the, and the offensive line, which, you know, stayed together mostly for, for 12 or 13 years. Those things just don't happen anymore. Yeah. And, and you remember um, Gerald Riggs, I think, scored 13 touchdowns right. that year. Or something. Yeah. Made $600,000. But their running backs were Ernest Biner and Ricky Irvins. And Cook said to the coaches, to Joe, really, before the season, are you sure? I'm not asking you to cut corners. I'll give you what you need. But are you sure you need Gerald Riggs to touch the ball 20 times the whole season? And Gibbs said, look, this is what he does for us, X, Y, and Z. And it's a, the, it's the, it's, it tells you what Jack Kent Cook as an owner is, that he said, okay, if, you, if that's the guy you want, then we're going to do it. We're not going to – even though it was 600000 at the, at the pool, at a time – when that was a good bit of money, you know, and I think the ground, the floor was laid, the foundation was laid for this championship. The previous year, they were four and three or five and four and playing the Dolphins at home. And I'll never forget this. Tony Kornheiser said to me on game day, right before kickoff, he said, you know, if they lose this game, I think we have to entertain the possibility that Joe Gibbs time has passed. This was the 1990 season. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I was rooting for him to win because, you know, because, you know, like he's going to ride it and I'm going to catch all the grief. Yes, of course. But they went on a great run. But it was around Thanksgiving that year that he called the players off the field. And among the things he said, he used the word gutless. You know, he was not a screamer because he couldn't scream. He had a high pitched voice. But he basically threatened every guy with their jobs. And he used the word gutless. You guys have had it pretty good around here. Things can change. And, you know, and they were really good down the stretch that year in 90. And I think that set them up for 91. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it, it's funny that you say that, too, because I've talked to guys. Um, you go back to that body bag game against the right. Eagles that year. That and a lot of guys have talked about that and how and how it riled up Joe so much. And first of all, because he hated Buddy Ryan so much right. that that was a motivation for him. And when they got to the playoffs, they knew they were going to beat him. But they you, they felt like that game was an impetus for them for 91. Yeah, and not only that. <laughs> that week, it's the only time – I was at the team hotel the night before the game. It was the only time, like, you didn't – there were no jokes. These guys were as serious and as focused as any group I've ever been around. Um, Joe, want, Joe said to the team again and again, you know, you guys don't have to win this game, but Buddy Ryan's going to call you, calls you, and this was Joe's words, a bunch of lazy fat asses if you don't win. <laughs> and Ray Dinger, who went on to work for the NFL Network and all, he's up there. Remember the Eagles preparing for the Super Bowl had gone to Tampa to practice that right. week. And that's a sticking it to Joe. And Ray Dinger is there. We're on Thursday night. It's late. It's dark. It's cold at Redskin Park. And Ray says to Joe, he's telling him all the stuff buddy is saying that week buddy's kind of making fun of joe and joe just has his arms crossed like this nothing is coming out of his mouth 
And at one point I go, hey, Joe, you can jump in here anytime now. But Ray says, when is the last time you went home? And Joe goes, Joe snaps at him. He goes, I go home. I go home. That's overstated. I get tired of hearing that. And Ray goes, well, why is your car the only one out there with snow on it? Gosh, dang it. I got to have somebody take the snow off my car. (laughs) But that was the other thing I remember when you went back, when, when you were still covering this team, when you came back the second or another time, but you would say that with Joe, because obviously, you know, the whole thing was he would stay there overnight. But if I remember right, you said part of the reason was because he'd stay there, like spend the first up until midnight telling stories. Well, yeah, it was not a, it was not the most efficient operation, but uh, I mean, they would find him up there on Saturday, on Friday nights, looking at special teams tape. Now, Friday night, you know, for people don't know, the work week's over. You're not putting anything else in on on Friday night. And so, I mean, but he was just so focused on getting it right. I mean, it was, and, and when you take it as seriously as he takes it, it rubs off on every one of the players. He was, he was 52 years old when he retired the first time. And now nobody was using the word burnout, which had been used almost a decade earlier when Dick Vermeil stepped away. But clearly that was it. And what you're just talking about there is an indication of why that happened. Yeah, he told me one night, he said he went to kiss Coy goodnight mm-hmm. in his bed. And he said he looked in his bed. He looked in this bed. And there was this thing that was 6'2". 210 pounds. He played linebacker for Stanford and he had a beard and he go, and Joe started to cry. He said, I, I realized I had missed so much of this kid's life and he was going to make up for it uh, in the, in the second chapter of his life. And he did. But you know, Andy, going back to some of what you were saying earlier too, about this team that I remember just as a football fan, when their games would be on, I would be almost disappointed when they're on TV only because I knew it was going to be a blowout. Like, you, you know, I mean, it's like they were they were impressive to watch, but their games weren't outside of a couple. The Houston game, there were a couple of Dallas games and all that. But outside of that, a lot most of them were just blowouts. Well, that's that's what brought about the Tony Kornheiser bandwagon. Yeah. College. They had the first game of the year against the Detroit Lions, who they would play in the championship game. They won 45 to nothing. And Barry Sanders missed that game. And Tony wrote. Well, Sanders worth 45 points? No. I mean, he, he knew they were good, and he decided pretty early on that he was going to capitalize on it and basically write a series of columns making fun of how good they were. That was part he, of it. He, he, the roster was constructed so brilliantly. Like, they didn't have a Reggie White, but they had jumpy gathers, and they could put him in there on third and seven, and he was as dominant as any pass rusher in the league. They, they had two safeties. Uh, Brad Edwards and Danny Colton, they got in plan B. Martin Mayhew, that year, Martin Mayhew secretly, uh, he was a plan B cornerback opposite Daryl Green. So you, and he'd been the cornerback opposite Dion at Florida State. So, you know, he'd, he'd been tested a lot. He was secretly going to Georgetown Law School at night, but he didn't want anybody to know because if he had a bad game, the coaches would use it against him. So they got really smart guys and guys that they could fit into certain roles that, uh, fit them perfectly. They, I think they finished that year number one in offense and number two in defense. That's, that's pretty good. You mentioned the Houston game, and uh, it's funny. Uh, at that time, early on, people said, well, they're, they're not good enough to go undefeated. But the Houston game, they were going in 8-0. So you're only six away now from the undefeated Dolphins of 72. And uh, it's a tie game. Late in the game, they punt to Brian Mitchell. He muffs the punt. 
Uh, Houston takes over. Now the kicker is Ian Howfield, Bobby Howfield's kid. Bobby Howfield kicked a long time for the New York Jets. And uh, he kicked a couple of field goals earlier in the game, short ones. It's one second to go. He needs a 33-yarder to win it. He misses. It goes to overtime, and they win. The next day, Howfield gets cut. He holds a news conference, ball in his eyes out, never kicked in the NFL again. Washington wins that game. They get to, what, 11-0, right, Richard? Didn't they get to 11-0 yeah. before they lost to Dallas? 11-0. Yeah, 11-0. And, uh, and they probably would have won that. It would have been interesting if, if they would have won that Dallas game. I think it was Thanksgiving weekend. And Alvin Harper caught a Hail Mary pass at the end of the half, which, uh, which helped them to win the game. Do you think, Richard, knowing Gibbs like you do, that he would have really wanted the undefeated season or would he have been relieved if they had lost one along the way the rest of the season? You know, so they followed up with road games against the Cardinals and Rams after that, and those were gut checks because the motivation had been we can have a perfect season because Joe didn't love Don Shula. <laughs> they had had some tough battles, including over hiring coaches and stuff. Right. And I think if the idea that he could keep the Dolphins from uh, having that toast every year. But you know what happened? They went into the Philadelphia game in the final game of the season. They, they were going to try to win the game. And Rippon gets hit twice in the game. The second time he got hit, Joe goes, that's it. We're done. And takes and says, I'm not letting my quarterback get hit one more time. And yeah. But, yeah, but I do think he would have understood the history of it. I was, I was just going to say the most remarkable stat about that season Rippon sacked seven times the whole year. The whole year. Now, I think they gave up nine because Humphreys may have been sacked a couple times in that Philly game. But seven sacks for the entire year. We have games like that now. And I think that Jim Lachey uh, had somewhat of a Gale Sayers type of career. He was, he was great for a short period of time. And I think it's possible that season that Jim Lachey may have had the greatest season ever at left tackle that anybody's ever had. Did he have a hall of fame career? We can debate that. But for that season, I can't think of anybody who could have played possibly better at any position. You know, it's funny, Richard, cause you bring up um, with Joe and Don Shula and I got to be around Joe the second iteration and you're around him enough. You could see what, what I always found. First of all, you could see the competitiveness <laughs> and you could see like during the week, Wednesdays, he was great to talk to on Wednesdays. You, he would talk for 40 minutes with the beat reporters. You could talk to him about Bill Parcells, all these guys give me great stories. On Friday, it was two minutes because he was so locked in. But going back to the Shula stuff with the competitiveness, you would, I think you would also one time talked about him with Bill Walsh and how that genius <laughs> label would kind of uh, tw tweak him a little bit. Yeah, exactly that. And I guess it was the year after he retired, I went with him to a Stanford – uh, when Bill Walsh was the coach of Stanford, I, I think it was Stanford Cal, in fact. And we'd had dinner with Bill Walsh the night before. And uh, we're at the game. It's not going well for Stanford. And somebody yells, hey, Walsh, is, you're certainly a genius or something like that. And Gibbs just starts laughing. Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I'm never coming back now or something like that. But I would look at him and I'm going, you're enjoying this a little too much, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, those coaches, that's the one, the great thing about the NFC East is those coaches truly dislike each other. You know, like you could have walked into the lobby at Redskin Park and say, hey, uh, Phil Sims, Lawrence Taylor, and Bo Parcells are here. They were, it would have been the battle stations, you know, and the Buddy Ryan was easy to dislike. I once said to Joe, like, like I grew up in Dallas. I love Tom Landry. 
And uh, he got fired in 89. And about the third time as I was getting to know Joe, I said something about, isn't it terrible what happened to poor, poor Coach Landry? Jerry Jones fired him like that. And he just wheels on me and goes, you don't get it. He spent 10 years trying to flush me down the toilet. And I spent 10 years trying to flush him down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> like whoa whoa let's don't we're gonna square off right now let's don't do that oh, that's <laughs> a side of kids we never saw that's funny well, and, oh and yeah, Andy, yeah yeah he would come and, in he would come he, I, that uh you know the follow-up to the body bag game in 90 was they played the eagles and you know buddies preparing for the super bowl and all that and i said to him later when did you know you'd won the game and he said first snap of the game we knocked their butts seven yards off the ball and i said this is going to be a good day to be the redskins well, and Andy, you know, again, going to Gibbs because Gibbs has the the grandfatherly image and it's he's a he's a really good guy and all that. But, man, was there a fire about him and the intensity with him. And I think, Andy, you had one time, I think it was with Mark Rippon and one of your shows talking about him throwing an orange at halftime. Yeah. Oh, well, no, I think it was uh, actually I think it was a Jess Atkinson uh, podcast that I did. Oh, okay. and, and you probably know this story, too. I think it was a Philadelphia game. So Jess would have been there the 87 season okay. and 86 the year before when they lost the championship game to the Giants. And they'd never seen this before. And he didn't he put his hand through a blackboard. I think, I think <laughs> he sure did. Yeah, it was like it was like Jess was there for the one moment of pure insanity uh, in the locker room at uh, in, in the first go round. Yeah. Now, and, you know, they they acquired a receiver and I can't remember the guy's name. And he bragged he was a nationally ranked racquetball player or something. You, do you remember what I'm talking? You remember the guy? I don't remember the guy, but yeah, yeah, I know you're going to get to Gibbs and racquetball. Yeah. 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 And they say, you know, Coach Gibbs is quite a racquetball player himself. And he goes, that little fat guy, are you kidding me? <laughs> Lo and behold, what was that health club out by the, by in Ashbury? You know, the health club or something like that. Joe was going out there at like four o'clock in the morning, playing racquetball, preparing to, to challenge this guy. I mean, he was crazy competitive. Yeah. That's why they're good. That's why they're good. Well, and good. also, Richard, because that in that 91 year, and you talked about the conversation that he had with Cook. What was their relationship like? Because he didn't seem to back down from Cook like others might. No, he didn't. And uh, uh, they're going down the hallway one time, Charlie Casserly and Joe on the Monday, Monday morning where you, you've lost the game. Jack, I mean, Jack King Cook has read the columns. He's listened to the talk shows. He's now fired up. And it was always bench the quarterback, bench the quarterback. It was always bench ripping. And going down the hallway, Charlie says to Joe, I'm going to side with Cook on this one. I think it's time to make a change. So they go in there and Joe gives him, you know, Cook, Cook, we all agree it's time to benchmark ripping. And Joe, like, starts giving X, Y, and Z, a defensive guy had his hand here, blah, blah, blah. He's, I trust him. He's in there. He's, he's, he's still the guy that can lead us. And Joe says to, um, Cook says to Joe, all right, it's your ass. And, and Joe just looks up and goes, well, Mr. Cook, it always is. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't he gave the same thing to Pettibone and Pettibone benched him, right? In, in 93. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My boss at the Washington post, George Solomon, one Monday, this was the, what year was that? 93. 93. 93. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, George has a feeling, has a hunch they're going to bench the quarterback. And I'm like, that's stupid. That's stupid. And I see Rod Dowhower, the offensive coordinator out in the hallway. 
And I said, Hey, uh, I got to ask you this. My boss is screwed up. He, but he thinks you're going to bench the quarterback this week. And I know it's stupid. And he goes, yeah, you, you're right. It's stupid. And I start to walk away and he goes, but we are <laughs> <laughs> ordered it. I went, Oh, please God, whatever you do, don't do it this week. <laughs> but yeah, but the point is you, you, Jack can cook. You, he had that withering look about him and he didn't tolerate fools no. and you had to be loaded for bear and cook. I mean, Joe, Joe just had a vision of what he thought the team should be. And if it was keeping Gerald Riggs for 600,000 to touch the ball 10 times, that's what he was going to do. Yeah. When did you guys know that this team could not just be a really good team, but a special team that could do what it eventually did. And you kind of, you brought up that Bengals game, you brought up a couple games, but was there a point later in the year where you really knew like, Oh, this team is different. Go, go ahead. I, I didn't. I didn't either. And, and, you know, and I think, I think you do have to go back to what kind of a year it was. I mean, it was, that was a year unlike this one where there was only one great team, right? I mean, there was right. no real. So, so the Falcons come in for the playoff game and it's, you know, Jerry Glanville with uh, too legit to quit. And he's got Evander Holyfield on the, going to the Marine Memorial. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a circus. And it was a non-competitive game. What everybody remembers is people throwing the seat cushions right. when, it, when it was raining like crazy. So, so then that, and then Detroit comes in. Well, they already beat Detroit 45 nothing. Right. How much better could they have been, you know, over the course of the season? So yeah. I, I think I think we getting to the Super Bowl was sort of a given. Now they're playing a, a team in Buffalo who should have beaten the Giants the year before. Right, right. Uh, you know, if Norwood hits the field goal, who knows? You know what what things are like and uh and then you know they, they totally dominated the bills and, but if you go back and look at it in hindsight and you can only see it in hindsight because i bought in just like the players did we we gotta we gotta give 110 percent each week we gotta do everything right we're not the time that's gonna roll walk out on the field and win the game but if you go back everything a good team has to do protect the quarterback explosive plays youth a youthful running back and Ricky Irvin's a reliable running back in uh, Ernest Biner rushing the passer. Richie, Richie was a, a, a riverboat gambler and calling defensive plays and all of that. When you go back and look at it from that angle, they, they were, they were a, a complete team. Could they have, could they have hung with the Cowboys two years later or with the Niners? I, I, I don't know about that because those teams were loaded with Hall of Famers, but for what they were, what, there's never been a team that got more out of its ability than that one. And I think when you go back and just say, how good was Gary Clark? When the, when the, when the Redskins drafted Desmond Howard, I'll never forget this. Jimmy Johnson told the Riders in Dallas, you know, this is a good day for us. How's this a good day for us? He goes, because every time he touches the ball, that's one time that Gary Clark's not touching it. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think Clark sometimes gets underappreciated. Oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, I remember when I first came here, Dan Daly from the Washington Times would always talk, whenever he was talking about Art Monk being the Hall of Fame, I think he was always one lobbying for Gary Clark should have been in there. Yeah, well, that, that actually Peter King used to say, and this probably hurt Art Monk, because when he was covering the Giants, the coaches said, we feared Gary Clark much more yeah. than Art Monk. And they played two different types of positions. Monk was right. a position receiver. Um, but, but speaking of Gary and, uh, and the quarterbacks, and he played briefly with Joe Theismann, and then he played, of course, with Doug Williams, and he played with Rippon. He said Rippon was the smartest guy he ever played with. He said, he said Joe was a great leader and in command and all that, 
but he said, he said, Rippon was just smart and was just so in sync with what Gibbs was doing. And as you talk about Richard, you got the combination of this great running game. You got a hall of fame receiver and another one who should at least get consideration in Gary Clark and Ricky Sanders. Well, he'd be a number one on most teams and he was a three on that team. So, and the offensive line with Lachey, like I talked about, I mean, he had everything going for him there. And here's another thing about that team. And this is true, I think, for most championship teams. They didn't have any major injuries, right? Ed right. Simmons went down early, and they moved Joe Jacoby, who should be in the Hall of Fame, right. from guard yes. to right tackle. And uh, I think, who did they put? Raleigh McKenzie, I think, went in as, uh, as right. the other guard. I mean, they, they, that's it. And I don't think there were any other major injuries that year. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that they did time and again was just move those guys around. Let, let me just – bore you with one story the coaches are having a meeting and joe says it's like they're eight no they know they're pretty good now you know they're on a roll joe says to the coaches you know what i really like about this team we don't have that dead gum five o'clock club anymore I, that thing just embarrassed me and jim hannapin told us told me the story the late jim hannapin and he said it was the only time in my life i kept my mouth shut because a day early, it had been Mark Schlereth's birthday or one of those. I think it was Schlereth's birthday. And they invited Hanny to come out to the shed. And he opened the door and there was seven layers of debauchery going on. And he goes, you know, this would be the end of my career. You guys have a good time. <laughs> I heard Madden and Summerall drank in the shed the night before the NFC Championship game. I don't know if it was that year, but maybe it was the one against Dallas um, in 83, maybe. I don't know. But but Jacoby told me that uh, they were hanging in the shed with them. <laughs> yeah. right, that would be fantastic hey, to have uh, Madden in that show. Let, let me just tell you one more um, about Rippon. They would <clears> – <throat> the coaches got so spoiled, they would go out on Wednesday. You know, Wednesday's the first day of the week. They have the game plan mostly in, or half of it in, and they give it to the players. They would have in street clothes, they would line up and have uh, Rip and just look at the field and what he was comfortable with. Are you comfortable with this? Are you comfortable? With this? That's how much they respected the guy. And they also knew that um, they could put package after package after package and Rippon could could deal with it all mentally. They're playing one week. It might have been it was late in the season. Or it could have been a playoff game. One of the coaches walks by me and says, uh, can you believe all the stuff we have in the game plan this week? Of course, me, the idiot, I go, like what? And he goes, you've been standing here and watching it for two hours. <laughs> no, I don't know. It all looked the same to me. <laughs> but that is a thing with Rippon. Even when Joe came back, he would talk about how Rippon was still one of the smartest players he had ever coached. But also that Super Bowl week, he had wasn't there some concern about his ankle? He got rolled on, uh, I want to say it was on Wednesday. And... Uh, you know, and he, I remember he came to the set, he saw George Mike, he, he talked to George Michael, and then he came over and see me and he was walking. I'm like, are you okay? But it was also a sign like, hey, we've had a great season. We've had a great week. Our guys are more mentally ready than, you know, they're not going to be any more mentally into it than they are. Um, let's, let's call it off. Let's don't let anybody else get hit because they, they're, you know, it, there, nothing could be more terrifying than to see a quarterback. Somebody rolled up on him in practice, and you're wondering, oh, my God, did that, is that the end of our season? How did they react to the Chuck Dickerson comments, the Bills defensive line coach who – I don't remember exactly what he said, but he, he – you know, people can Google what he said. But it, it, probably, you guys probably remember exactly what he said, so take it from here. 
Yeah, I, well, I, I actually got to know him a little bit because uh, when a guy shoots off his mouth, the next place for him is sports radio. <laughs> so, uh, so we used to go and do almost every year we did Radio Row at the Super Bowl. He was, of course, working for a Buffalo station. And uh, he, had, he had said some things during the week. Uh, and, you know, this is the days before social media. So how Gibbs got a hold of this, I don't know. But, but from what I'm told, you know, he was mouthing off during the, the media sessions about how ugly the hogs were and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, uh, and so Gibbs got, got a hold of the tape and showed it to the team the night before the game. And not that they needed any more firing up, but uh, as I understand it, Marv Levy fired him after the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much it contributed to, to Washington winning, but it didn't hurt, I'm sure. And, you know, like, I thought it was funny. I didn't think either you would use it as motivational. He called them Neanderthal. They're ugly. Yeah. I mean, I thought they were proud of all those. <laughs> they probably of- like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I find out later what that guy said got us going like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it seems so harmless. But, hey, you do what you use, whatever you, weapon you have. The other thing that I remember from before that game, and Sports Illustrated did a story on this after the fact, they were somebody was in Jim Kelly's hotel room, somebody was in Rippin's hotel room, and the contrast between the two, what like Rippin was with his family, Kelly was with his business managers. Now that may be, you know, I don't know if that was full context, but I don't know, I don't know if you remember that, and just like the contrast between those two. Well, I mean, Kelly was already a big name because he'd right. already been to a Super Bowl and and Rippin was uh, was a six round pick. And, you know, the thing about that season, too, is Rippin bet on himself. Right. right. He, he was he was going to be a free agent and they offered him. I don't know what kind of a deal it was, but uh, he he didn't take it and played for three hundred thousand or something like that. And uh <laughs> And then prior, this is how things work prior to free agency. It wasn't like Joe Flacco who got a hundred million dollars. He held out the next year and that was kind of the beginning of the end, wasn't it? Yeah. Three years. I think he got three years, $9 million, but that was, um, I mean, that was, that was, uh, that was life changing money for Mark and right. He believed in himself and that Super Bowl, you could just see his joy growing week by week. But I mean, he'd be the first to tell you, Joe looked at his strengths and his weaknesses and uh, just said, we're going to utilize one thing and we're going to, we're going to protect the heck out of him. Remember the following year they go to Minnesota and the first half ripping was terrible. I mean, he was terrible. And then he got hot and after the game, this was Martin. He goes, you know, when I'm good, I'm okay. I'm pretty good, but I can really be ugly at times. <laughs> I mean, who says that? What Super Bowl MVP says that about himself? What, what also do you remember about the Russ Grimm hotel party after the win? <laughs> Did you hear the story? I heard this from, from no. Jacoby. Okay, well, here you go. Here, take it away, Andy. Okay, well, Grimm, Grimm said before the season that he was going to retire. And uh, from what I'm told, Russ Grimm wasn't a guy who was like a workout warrior uh, <laughs> year, year round. And uh, I heard this from Curtis Jordan. Curtis Jordan played on the earlier Super Bowl teams. He said, one time they're in the off season and they're playing golf and uh, they go from the cart up to the green. It's a little bit of elevated green and uh, Russ is huffing and puffing and they get to the green and, and, and Curtis says, Russ, are you in that bad of shape? You know, this is only three months after the season. So after 11 years, he was, he knew he was done. He played back up on that team. And after the Super Bowl, went up to his hotel room and according to Jake ordered whatever they had, 
in stock <laughs> for, uh, for booze. And he invited up the offensive line and they toasted themselves for, for what was a great run. Now Jake came back and Bostic came back and uh, May was gone at that point. But uh, th- those three guys were really the core of those three Super Bowl championship teams. They were the constants while the quarterbacks and the, and the running backs changed. So, you know, they had a fire escape at Redskin Park and the, the coaches would order dinner from Marriott, from the Dulles Marriott. And the, the, guy, <laughs> the guy would bring, it was a panel truck, would park by the fire escape and would be taking the food up to the coach's room. Well, next door to, next door to the truck was the shed where the five o'clock club was meeting. And they sometimes would help themselves to their own, to the entrees that they had not ordered. And then they, can you imagine telling Joe Gibbs, you know, that chicken you ordered, it disappeared. <laughs> I'm walking down the hall one day and Barbara Severe, uh, Wayne, the special teams coach wife and Joe's secretary yells, Russ Grimm, at least have the decency to bring the cake platter black back. He had stolen a cake off the truck when the guy was upstairs and, and the hogs had devoured the cake. And I mean, but, you know, you, you can make all that's funny. But in those those five o'clock club sessions, you build camaraderie and you yeah. build trust. And I, I think it was Graham said one time um, there are days you, after a play, you hurt so badly that you can't comprehend what the quarterback's saying. And the guy next to you will say, just lean on me. I got you on that. And that's what they had. They had a, they, it was maybe one of the last teams, as you said, Andy, that, um, that they could keep together, keep the core together for a long time. And there was trust from here to here on that roster. You know, and, and I think that's a great place to end. I appreciate you guys. Now, I don't know if people listening are going to be depressed or what after this, because it's been so long. It's hard to believe that it's been 30 years since that Super Bowl win. And not a lot has happened in between to celebrate for them. But I think it'll be fun for people to go back and hear all this because I think it's, it's some great memories. So thank you guys for coming on. Thanks for coming. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know some of you might feel a bit energized and then also deflated after hearing it, knowing where things were and where they are now. I hope for your sake, there are good times ahead. Thanks to Richard and Andy for joining me, and thank you, as always, for listening. I'll be back with another episode Friday. Talk to you next time.